O Lord, you spoke the world into existence with a word. I pray that by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, you would remake us into the image of your Son. Amen. My first thought was perfect. That's, that's just perfect. Things had been so out of control with my brother for so long that it didn't surprise me in the least that he was uh, storming around the house again in one of his fits. He said he'd had enough of our provincial ways that he was going to shake the dust off of our crummy little town off of his feet and he was going to see the world. And if we were lucky, he'd send back a few nice things that would brighten up our dreary interior design. He said he uh, was going to go away, and I thought to myself, oh boy, here we go again. The drama queen pitching another fit. My first clue that things might be different this time was when he demanded that our father divide up the inheritance and give him his. He'd never done that before. Now, I knew that he was conniving. I knew that he was self-centered, but this, this was more than I could take. They had sent for me and said, your daddy wants to see you and your brother up at the house in his study. By the time I made it up to the house, his bags were packed and they were sitting there on the porch all ready to go. What really made my jaw drop was what my dad did next. I have to hand it to the old man. He didn't seem surprised in the least. Cool as a cucumber. He reached over into the drawer of his desk and pulled out an official-looking document, put it on the table, and I, I could read it there even though it was upside down. It was a large black ink. Title transfer. A few scratches of the pen, signed and dated, and it was done just like that, he signed over my brother's inheritance and made it out to cash. Now, I would never dishonor my father in front of another person by saying this out loud, but I wanted to grab him by the lapels and shout, why on earth are you doing this? Now, I, I know that his action in that moment doesn't seem that strange to you. But let me assure you that what he did in that moment was financially disastrous and socially foolish. Usually when the story of our family gets told, there are quite a few details that are blithely overlooked. And now that it's my turn to tell the tale, I think that it might be just worth lingering over a few inconvenient truths. You see, our family farm had been in our family holding for generations. In our society, property isn't bought and sold like it is in yours. It's either inherited or redeemed. For generations, our family had worked this land made it a little bit better for the next generation. 
Every generation handed on what they had in turn received. And the idea was that as the property became more mature and more valuable, it would be able to weather the storms of a bad market or uncertain financial times. Let me give you one concrete example of this. Out in the main barn behind our place, where the water runs off the edge of the roof, there's a cistern. It's about as, as long as a man is tall, and it comes up to about your knee. And the inside of it, it's, it's, all, it's all one giant piece of rock. And the inside of it has been carved out with rock hammers and chisels. Every time I pause to look at that, I can't imagine how they got the rock up there in the first place. And secondly, what kind of dedication it must have taken for someone to take a giant stone and begin chiseling it one tiny blow at a time. And all I can think is the man who did that must have held some kind of promise in his heart. You see, it's, it's not about the stuff. It's about the covenant that the stuff stands in for. You see, it's estates like ours that form the backbone of our society. The entire structure of our people would be undermined by this kind of rash decision, which is why the laws of our people rightly condemn it. According to the rabbis, and I quote, three things cry out and are never answered. He who gives money without witnesses, he who acquires a master, and he who transfers his property during his lifetime. The intent of the law is to prevent title transfers while the father is still living, or else the financial basis of his position as patriarch is completely undermined. When my brother asked for his half of the inheritance, that was like pr pronouncing my father dead. Now, I, I don't mean to bore you all with a lot of this legalese. I just feel like it's my duty to tell this part of the story because it so often gets overshadowed by what comes next. But before your imagination gets carried away with my brother bouncing around from one wonderful locality to another, spending himself in riotous living, just let me remind you that the money that paid for his penthouse kept me from putting a new roof on my house. My father and everyone else might neglect the finer points of the law, but somebody has to keep up with the finer points of the finances or everything will go up in smoke. And I, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm fine with that being my job. But what, what bothers me is not the fact that the account books fall to me. What bothers me is that nobody else seems to care that there are account books. Anyway, I digress. I suppose you all want me to get to the fun part, don't you? Everybody likes to imagine themselves as my brother. That's, that's, that's part of what gives him his charm. 
rambling around the Mediterranean without a care in the world, blown from town to town on the winds of extravagance, unburdened by the moral requirements of our people, finally free to just be himself and give in to all the desires that he had suppressed while he was back home living with us. Everyone likes to imagine writing their own story just so long as there's a place to come home to when they get tired of living it. I mean, you've all heard this story so many times that you, you, you can't even imagine how low a body will go. It doesn't, it doesn't shock you anymore to know what he did and how he did it. Because anytime the details of his prodigality get too much for you, you can just imagine him skipping on, on back home to dad. In your mind, the way home always has plenty of food, gas, and lodging. But let me remind you, for every yellow brick road back home, there are a hundred city sidewalks that are cracked and choked with weeds. For every prodigal son who comes to his senses, there are a thousand who are beaten senseless. For every prodigal daughter who finds a, a uh, a ride to the bus stop, there are a thousand others who are left stranded on the side of the road. I know that you like to think that this is a story about repentance because everybody likes to imagine being able to come back from an all-time low, but let me assure you, I know my brother. I know what he's like. I know what he is. I can just hear him sitting there in his squalor rehearsing the speech that would get him back in with dad. I can imagine him sitting there and saying, dad, uh, protocol was not followed. Mistakes were made. No, no, the old man won't like that. He likes things straight to the point. I'll, I'll just come right out and use language he can understand. I'll say, uh, uh, father, I've sinned. Yeah, yeah. Old man likes theological language. Father, I, I've, I've, I've sinned and I'm, I'm not worthy to untie the thong of your sandals. No, that's too Jewish. Let's see here. I'm not worthy. Uh, I've sinned and I'm not worthy to be called your son. Yeah, that, that, that could actually work. I, I could ask to be treated like an employee because at least... The hired hands around dad's place have three squares a day, and that's a lot better than I'm doing in this old pigsty. Sure, my brother admitted that what he did was sin. But before you go on thinking that he's the poster boy for repentance, let me tell you one thing that you've never heard before. You know that little speech that he made? I bet nobody's ever bothered to tell you that he had it written on his hand. One thing I hate about the way my brother's story is told is that people just assume that he came home because he was sorry or because he wanted to get back in the good graces of our family or because he wanted to make up for lost time. But I repeat, he never said that. He never said that he was going to do better or be better. There was never one time when he said that he wasn't going to do it anymore. Now, if, if anybody had bothered to ask me, 
I would have suggested that we have a trial period of repentance just to, to, to test his sincerity, even for a month. But did anybody ask me? No. And if my suggestion seems harsh, let me assure you, it's nothing compared to what the law demands. The Talmud specifies the exact community response that the community is to meet with the prodigal who comes home. That's right. The ceremony is called the kesatza. When a prodigal son comes back, he's met at the gate of the village by the other villagers, and they take an earthenware jug full of burned corn and nuts, and they hold it up and smash it in front of him, calling out his name. And from then on, he is treated as an orphan who may as well go back and live in the pigsty. That's what the law demands. I'm just trying to show you here that there are standards. There are religious, ethical, moral, social standards. There are rules. But what was worse than my brother's shameless self-concern was that my father seemed too dim to see through it all. But I guess dad's been different ever since his other son left. He's no longer strong enough to come out to the fields to see all that I've been doing. There's a sad place around the edge of his eyes. It's as though losing his son on top of losing his wife was more than he could handle. You knew that, didn't you? That mom died when we were just little kids. And from then on, it's like dad has had to have both the justice and the mercy. He had to run the business, keep up with the finances, manage the field hands. But he also had to come around and clean up after all of my brother's messes. He had to be the nurturer. And one time after another, after another. And finally, I wanted to say to dad, maybe it's time we gave him a little justice and not quite so much mercy. When that other son of his left, it was hard. I'm told that he spent half the day looking out the window, watching down the road for him to come home. And when prodigal boy finally tucked his tail and came on back home to daddy, it's like the dishonor was contagious because what my father did next was nothing short of shameful. When he saw his other son coming from afar off, did he wait with dignity and calm by the door in the way that a patriarch should? No. He hiked up his robes to where people could see his bare legs, and he ran down the road like a little boy. And instead of insisting that that other son kiss his ring to show authority and respect, what did he do but took his ring off and gave it to him? I'm told that he hung on him and kissed him like a woman would. I wish that I had been there to stop him. I would have said, Father, why on earth are you doing this? But I suppose we'd already dishonored ourselves enough. I'm told that as soon as they got back to the house, Dad was still hanging on him and shouting to the servants, You, go in my room, 
get the finest robe that I've got, the double-breasted one that's wool, and you get the calfskin slippers and bring them to him and put them on his feet, and, and you go into my study and get the signet ring because all of the authority and dignity of this house will now belong to my son who was lost. Now, <laughs> you wouldn't have to wonder too long to know where I was while all these shenanigans were going on. I was in the south pasture, of course, doing all the things that had to be done. Two of the men came down and said, uh, your brother's home. I could almost detect a little smirk around his mouth. Your brother's home and your daddy's calling for you. I told him not to worry about it. I'd get up there when I could. After all, there were things to be done, and if I didn't do them, they wouldn't get done, right? As I made my way up the hill, I could already hear the noise. And I should just add that uh, when I get angry, I, I don't pitch a fit like my brother. I don't think it's my place to make everybody else uh, have to think about my emotions. As the servants went around lighting the lamps of the house, I could see musicians coming down the road with the banjo and mandolin and fiddle. I noticed inside somebody had moved my reading chair from its place beneath the lamp and slid it up against the wall to make room for dancing. And then what did I see but two men leading the fatted calf down the lane? And then I realized why they were building the bonfire. It was going to be to roast the calf. Servants were coming in and out the back door of the kitchen, preparing uh, for a feast that looked more extravagant than anything I had ever seen before. And all the while, I stayed out on the porch watching. My dad peered through the curtain, and he came out on the porch and said to me, Son, when are you going to come in? Haven't you heard? Your brother's back. I couldn't, I couldn't even look at him. I just stared off into the distance. I, I, did, I didn't want to get into it, not right then. I said, Dad, just, just go back into the house. You've obviously got a lot to do. Sure, son, you, you take a minute if you need to. Why, I could hardly believe it myself. But I just want you to know, if we're going to do this party right, we need you in there with us. You're my friend, my companion, and everything I have is yours. He skipped off back into the house, and I just stayed outside. Inside, the party was really warming up. People were gathered around the table, laughing and drinking, nobody wondering how all this was going to be paid for. People were toasting and telling jokes. But my father kept looking out the window at me. He got up and came out onto the stoop again and said, Son, is it about the money? The line of inheritance and all that? You know, I know that the business affairs have fallen to you lately, and I just want you to know how proud I am for the way you've handled yourself. 
you must know that everything I have belongs to you. And everything that we have as a family is in your hands. Won't you come in? Ah, just forget it, Dad. I'll see. The feast went on and on. I had never seen the house so bright. And I'd never seen the yard so dark. As dessert was being served, I saw him again get up and come out to me. Why on earth would he do that? Son, is it the party? I, I know it's expensive. But you know, we, we had a good year last year, and next year promises to be even better. So why don't you come in and celebrate? That's just it, Dad. Can't you see that I wanted to celebrate? Can't you see that I'd like to have a party? I've never done anything to disobey you or dishonor you, not once. And never did you let me so much as have a little get-together with my friend. Don't you think I would like to eat some of the fatted calf? Hey, newsflash, who do you think put the fat on the fatted calf? I did. Oh, son. Oh, son. Can't you see that life is more than money? And the feast that comes at the end of our labor is more than the fat of the land. Delight with me that the one who was lost is now found. And know that the love that I have for him I share with you. You've always been with me. And you always will be. Eh, we'll see about that. I'll never forget how he kept looking out the window at me. His laughter was for the guest, but his eyes were for me. Why on earth would he do that? I decided it was time I found out. Like it or not, the next chapter in our family story was the one that I wrote with what I did next. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.